Okay, so this is an experiment. This is um, chapter three. I'm outside because I'm nowhere near home at the moment, but I've got a few minutes to go through at least part of chapter three, which is called The Spark. I'm not going to get through the whole lot because it's a much longer chapter than what chapter two is. So The Spark is the famous chapter with the two stone tablets that we'll get to eventually. Um, these are mentioned in one of David's TED Talks. So the spark is about knowledge, but knowledge from the Enlightenment, essentially. So the kind of culture of criticism that we've spoken about previously, it is the thing that sets fire to the rest of civilization. It is the thing that allows us to create knowledge that is without bound and that which can have cosmic significance. Okay, so the spark begins by talking about how ancient myths were largely anthropocentric. They were about us. So our first attempts to understand the world were always centred on what human beings were doing and what human beings were capable of doing and how the rest of reality was here for us, was here to try and attack us or here to try and preserve us in some way. So this idea is called anthropocentrism. So let me begin at the very beginning of chapter 3 and we will read through at least part of it. So it begins. Most ancient accounts of the reality beyond our everyday experience were not only false, they had a radically different character from modern ones. They were anthropocentric. That is to say, they centred on human beings and more broadly on people entities with intentions and human-like thoughts, which included powerful supernatural people such as spirits and gods. So winter might be attributed to someone's sadness, harvests to someone's generosity, natural disasters to someone's anger and so on. Such explanations often involved cosmically significant beings caring what humans did or having interactions about them. This conferred cosmic significance on humans too. Then, the geocentric theory placed humans at the physical hub of the universe as well. Those two kinds of anthropocentrism, explanatory and geometrical, made each other more plausible. And as a result, pre-enlightenment thinking was more anthropocentric than we can readily imagine nowadays. So here's the idea that the geocentric theory has put humans at the hub of existence, okay, or the physical centre of human existence, but the word hub there is important. But as David is about to explain, what modern science did was to undo that misconception. And it took human beings, the species, away from being some kind of special entity astronomically, we aren't at the centre of the universe, nor some kind of special entity biologically. We evolved from uh, lower forms of animals. And this has led to a whole bunch of misconceptions about people and knowledge and the significance of both. So although it was right, literally, that we are not at the center of the universe, the removal of humans as being significant to the universe is wrong. And so this new view that we're going to get from David is that knowledge has cosmic significance. And one kind of entity creates explanatory knowledge. That's people. So he's about to explain that people are special. So therefore the earth is 
a hub. This is the amazing contribution, the amazing and surprising thing that David said during one of his TED Talks. David then begins to speak about astrology and how astrology makes the logical case that because, well, I'm not sure that he says this, but that this is the fact, um, that it, it makes logical sense that the stars control people's lives because indeed things that happen in the sky do have effects on the ground, on people's lives. When the clouds open up and it rains, that has a very direct effect on people growing crops. And if the sky doesn't rain, that also has an effect. People may have seen all sorts of things coming from the sky that affected their lives. Not least of which, the change in seasons can be predicted by looking at the constellations on the sky. So it makes perfect sense that the sky controls what goes on here on Earth. Of course, it's false in many, many ways. Um, the particular pattern of stars happens to correlate with certain events that happen here on Earth. But the reason why we get changes of weather over the course of a year and why those changes are periodic and they are, in a sense, foretold in the stars, they correlate with the stars but are not caused by the stars, is because of the axis tilt theory. And the axis tilt theory is the thing that explains why the stars happen to be in different places over the course of the year and repeat their positions over the course of the year. But you can draw a reasonably logical straight line from common sense to astrology. But David says, of course, now we know that the pattern of stars and planets in our night sky has no significance for human affairs. We know that we are not the center of the universe. It does not even have a geometrical center at all. And we know that although some of the titanic astrophysical phenomena that I have described play a significant role in our past, we have never been significant to them. We call a phenomenon significant or fundamental if parochial theories are inadequate to explain it or if it appears in the explanation of many other phenomena. So it may seem that human beings and their wishes and actions are extremely insignificant in the universe at large. Anthropocentric misconceptions have also been overturned in every other fundamental area of science. Our knowledge of physics is now expressed entirely in terms of entities that are as impersonal as Euclid's points and lines, such as elementary particles, forces and space-time, a four-dimensional continuum with three dimensions of space and one of time. Now the wind has picked up here so much, I'm going to have to move. Okay, well talking about natural forces thwarting human affairs, um, I've moved. Um, we'll continue for another 10 to 15 minutes. I think the um, light will hold out and the wind shouldn't be too bad. So I was up to the part where David has just defined what significant or fundamental happens to be. Um, so let me continue. Um, and he is now going to explain the issues with um, abandoning anthropocentric ideas, but also the important move forward that um, abandoning those anthropocentric ideas happens to be. So, let me read. He says, 
So fruitful has this abandonment of anthropocentric theories been, and so important in the broader history of ideas, that anti-anthropocentrism has increasingly been elevated to the status of a universal principle, sometimes called the principle of mediocrity, which says, there is nothing significant about humans in the cosmic scheme of things. As the physicist Stephen Hawking put it, humans are just a chemical scum on the surface of a typical planet that's in orbit around a typical star on the outskirts of a typical galaxy." End quote. The proviso, in the cosmic scheme of things, is necessary because the chemical scum evidently does have a special significance according to values that it applies to itself, such as moral values. But the principle says that all such values are themselves anthropocentric. They explain only the behaviour of the scum, which is itself insignificant. It is easy to mistake quirks of one's own familiar environment or perspective, such as the rotation of the night sky, for objective features of what one is observing, or to mistake rules of thumb, such as the prediction of daily sunrises, for universal laws. I shall refer to that sort of error as parochialism. Okay, so this idea of parochialism, where we are making the error of assuming that what's going on in our local environment happens to be of universal importance. And that's a mistake. He continues, anthropocentric errors are examples of parochialism, but not all parochialism is anthropocentric. For instance, the prediction that the seasons are in phase all over the world is a parochial error but not an anthropocentric one. It does not involve explaining seasons in terms of people. Um, now David goes on to explain a little bit more about Spaceship Earth and this idea that the planet Earth is an exceedingly fragile biosphere that is here to try and keep us and everything else on board alive. So it is a spaceship that is taking us on a journey around the sun and in turn on a journey through around the galaxy and in turn uh, a journey into the future. But the Earth is here in an attempt to sustain us and to sustain life. This is what this concept of Spaceship Earth is. And David undermines this. And I think he does one of the best jobs of this that anyone has ever done in print, anyone has ever done in person. And he, he's going to explain something really profound, which is this idea that the Earth is not here to sustain us. It's not trying to sustain us. If anything, if we're going to say that it was either um, a force for good or a force for evil towards human beings, we would have to argue it's pretty much a force for evil. We have to do what we can to try and protect ourselves from the environment, from the planet Earth. Now, sure, it is the friendliest place for human beings in all of existence that we know of. No one's thinking of going to Venus to, for a holiday. Um, there isn't much in interstellar space that's going to sustain us. So the Earth is more sustaining than other places. But it's not a friendly spaceship. It is a place of hostile weather and hostile climate, of disease and pestilence, of pollution in the water that we have to try and filter out. Uh, it is forever trying to starve us or to burn us to blow us away, to drown us, to earthquake us to death. It is not a friendly place. The other organisms that are here are not particularly friendly. I'm here in Australia. There is 
a larger number of species of spider and snake that can kill you here, I think, than just about anywhere. So the Earth is not our friend. It's also not our enemy, okay, but it's just an inert rock in space that happens to be our home, and we have to do our best with what we can, with the resources that are here in our backyard, to try and protect ourselves from the planet. It's not that it's an enemy, it's just unfriendly. Okay, so let me continue with uh, chapter three. David writes, the spaceship Earth metaphor and the principle of mediocrity have both gained wide acceptance among scientifically minded people to the extent of becoming truisms. This is despite the fact that on the face of it, they argue in somewhat opposite directions. The principle of mediocrity stresses how typical the Earth and its chemical scum are in the sense of being unremarkable, while Spaceship Earth stresses how untypical they are in the sense of being uniquely suited to each other. Skipping a little. Both oppose arrogance. The principle of mediocrity opposes the pre-enlightenment arrogance of believing ourselves significant in the world. The Spaceship Earth metaphor opposes the enlightenment arrogance of aspiring to control the world. We should not consider ourselves significant, they assert, we should not expect the world to submit indefinitely to our depredations. Skipping a little more. If you were seeking maxims worth being carved in stone and recited each morning before breakfast, you could do a lot worse than to use their negations. That is to say, the truth is that people are significant in the cosmic scheme of things and the Earth's biosphere is incapable of supporting human life. So that's remarkable. In my own words, the principle of mediocrity is this idea that we are in no sense, on the cosmic scheme of things, in a particularly special place. That planet Earth is just a typical planet orbiting a typical star. Um, and more and more that we learn about science, we kind of understand that this is true in a sense. The Kepler data from the Space Telescope has revealed that the overwhelming majority of stars that are out there have planets and they have terrestrial planets kind of like the earth possibly in what they call the habitable zone although the habitable zones are rather useless concept given that um, well what is habitable uh, depends entirely upon the technology that you have or indeed if we're talking about um, lower forms of biology exactly what their temperature ranges happen to be because we know that um, even certain kinds of bacteria, archaea, can exist at temperatures well higher than the boiling point of water and well below the freezing point of water. So this idea of the habitable zone has, has changed over time. Nonetheless, the point is, planet Earth is possibly a, a, a well, the solar system is possibly going to turn out to be a rather typical kind of structure in the universe. But there are planets like Earth out there, not exactly like Earth, they might not have human beings or animals or biology at all, but in terms of um, just the geology of the Earth, um, it might be pretty unremarkable. So this is the principle of mediocrity, that we're not the centre of the universe, that the Earth is typical. And yet on the other hand, the spaceship Earth idea is that the Earth is not typical in any way. It's the only thing that can sustain us. We have to preserve it, otherwise we're in all sorts of trouble because there's nowhere else to go. But David is saying here that two things actually are true. It's not the case that the earth is the only thing that can sustain us. Indeed, it doesn't sustain us. The majority of the 
species of animals that have ever existed have gone extinct. We know this. 99.9 something or other percent of animals that have ever existed on this planet have been wiped out, exterminated by the very planet that is supposed to be sustaining them. If humans want to be different, the exception to that rule, we have to use the one feature that we have that is superior to every other animal on this planet. And that is our special relationship to the construction of explanatory knowledge, our minds. So the Earth's not going to sustain us. It's not going to support us. Only we can do that. And moreover, this same thing that allows us to support ourselves here on the Earth is the very thing that ultimately make us, well, makes us significant in the cosmic scheme of things because we can create explanatory knowledge. We create that thing which allows us to transform the environment around us. And we will start local, we will spread global, and then we will move cosmic. And so there is absolutely no law of physics preventing this. The only thing that prevents the growth of knowledge and hence the spread of people throughout the universe to make the universe a more friendly, um, bio-friendly place is our desire to do so, our wealth and capacity to do so, and our knowledge of how to do so. So let's continue. Um, David writes, We are an uncommon form of ordinary matter. The commonest form is plasma, atoms dissociated into their electrically charged components, which typically emits bright, visible light because it is in stars, which are rather hot. We scums are mainly infrared emitters because we contain liquids and complex chemicals which can only exist at a much lower range of temperatures. He then explains that um, the majority of the universe has a temperature of 2.7 degrees above absolute zero, um, which is 270 degrees colder than the freezing point of water. Only very unusual circumstances, he writes, can make anything colder than those microwaves, the, the cosmic microwave background radiation of 2.7 Kelvin. Nothing in the universe is known to be cooler than about one Kelvin, except in certain physics laboratories on Earth. There, the record low temperature achieved is below one billionth of a Kelvin. Um, and he says, and this is quite remarkable as well, to think about that um, if you had some technology which allowed you to measure the temperature on some other planet, we kind of can do that, but with the, with the level of fidelity required that we could determine exactly what um, the temperature was in, in some small region on that planet, if we found a place on that planet which had a temperature below one Kelvin, then we'd have to presume that there were people there because we know of no physical process that naturally could do that. The only way that it can be done, the only way to remove heat down to a millionth of a Kelvin above absolute zero would be via some technology. And so if you discover in the universe somewhere, somewhere that is very, 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 very close to absolute zero and certainly some quite distance from 2.7 Kelvin above absolute zero, so something really, really cold, you found aliens. Quite remarkable. David then goes on to um, uh, go through the story about what a typical place in the universe is like. And this is that wonderful part of his TED talk where he jokes that um, at great expense, the organizers of TED have uh, been able to 
do an immersive rendering of the um, of what it's like in intergalactic space and everything goes dark, impeccably dark, um, because that's what interstellar intergalactic space is like. There's not much matter there. Um, and he says, this is a typical place in the universe. He writes, cold, dark and empty. That unimaginably desolate environment is typical of the universe and is another measure of how untypical the Earth and its chemical scum are in a straightforward physical sense. The issue of the cosmic significance of this type of scum will shortly take us back out into intergalactic space, but let me first return to Earth and consider the spaceship Earth metaphor in its straightforward physical version. This much is true. If tomorrow, physical conditions on the Earth's surface were to change even slightly by astrophysical standards, then no humans could live here unprotected, just as they could not survive on a spaceship whose life support system had broken down. Yet I am writing this in Oxford, in England, where the winter nights are likewise often cold enough to kill any human unprotected by clothing and other technology. So while intergalactic space would kill me in a matter of seconds, Oxfordshire, in its primeval state, might do the same in a matter of hours, which can be considered life support only in the most contrived sense. There is a life support system in Oxfordshire today. Oxfordshire? Oxfordshire. This is my Australian difficulty with that word. Um, there is a life support system in Oxfordshire today, but it was not provided by the biosphere. It has been built by humans. It consists of clothes, houses, farms, hospitals, an electrical grid, a sewerage system and so on. Nearly the whole of the Earth's biosphere in its primeval state was likewise incapable of keeping an unprotected human alive for long. It would be much more accurate to call it a death trap for humans rather than a life support system. Even the Great Rift Valley in Eastern Africa, where our species evolved, was barely more hospitable than primeval Oxfordshire. Unlike the life support system in that imagined spaceship, the Great Rift Valley lacked a safe water supply and medical equipment and comfortable living quarters and was infested with predators, parasites and disease organisms. It frequently injured, poisoned, drenched, starved and sickened its passengers and most of them died as a result. It was similarly harsh to all the other organisms that lived there. Few individuals lived comfortably or die of old age in the supposedly beneficent biosphere. That is no accident. Most populations of most species are living close to the edge of disaster and death. It has to be that way because as soon as some small group somewhere begins to have a slightly easier life, Australia. That is no accident. Most populations of most species are living close to the edge of disaster and death. It has to be that way because as soon as some small group somewhere begins to have a slightly easier life, then that for any reason, for instance, an increased food supply or the extinction of a competitor or predator, then its numbers increase. As a result, other resources are depleted. And then David speaks about just how um, terrible nature happens to be. So um, there's, he writes, there's rampant disabling and killing of individuals by starvation, exhaustion, predation, overcrowding, and all those other natural processes. That is the situation to which evolution adapts organisms. And that, therefore, is the lifestyle in which the Earth's biosphere seems adapted to sustaining them. So the only way in which we could make the argument that the Earth seems to sustain us is because organisms have adapted to the Earth, to whatever the, the whimsical nature of the environment happens to be at any particular time based upon climate. And so when the climate has altered over geological timescales, then 
or, or um, some other environmental factor simply causes the balance of species to change, predators increase or decrease, um, competitors increase or decrease, food supply goes up, goes down, then so do the fortunes of the animals that happen to live in that area or the organisms generally that live in that area. Um, so it's not like the Earth is sustaining us. The animals that are here now, the plants that are here now, the organisms broadly that are here on the Earth now are well suited to the environment as it happens to be. But we know the environment cannot possibly remain the same. This is the lesson from geology and biology together. The only reason that we have evolution by natural selection is because of changes in the environment. If there were no changes in the environment, there would be no selection pressure and there would be no change. You would have random mutations, but there'd be nothing to select those random mutations. David writes, the biosphere is not a great preserver of species. In addition to being notoriously cruel to individuals, evolution involves continual extinctions of entire species. The average rate of extinction since the beginning of life on Earth has been about 10 species per year. The number is only very approximately, becoming much higher during the relatively brief periods that paleontologists call mass extinction events. The rate at which species have come into existence has on balance only slightly exceeded the extinction rate. And the net effect is that the overwhelming majority of species that have ever existed on Earth, perhaps 99.9% .9 of them, are now extinct. Okay, and so David speaks about how it just emphasizes how hostile the environment, the biosphere, the planet, is to organisms generally and to human beings in particular. He writes, today, almost the entire capacity of the Earth's life support system for humans has been provided not for us, but by us, using our ability to create new knowledge. There are people in the Great, Great Rift Valley today who live far more comfortably than early humans did, and in far greater numbers, through knowledge of things like tools, farming, and hygiene. The Earth did provide the raw materials for our survival, just as the sun has provided the energy and supernova provided the elements and so on, but a heap of raw materials is not the same thing as a life support system. The life support system requires knowledge, he goes on to explain.